This is the Parsha Podcast, and my name is Rabbi Yaakov Wolby, and it's a great pleasure to speak to you again this week. And as always, my email address is rabbiwolby at gmail.com. This week is Parsha's Korach, and the Parsha begins with the story of the 254 conspirators in the rebellion against Moshe and against Aaron. You have the 250 unnamed heads of the Sanhedrin, and then you have Korach, of course, the ringleader. You have a gentleman by the name of On Ben Pelas, On the son of Pelas, and finally you have the two brothers, Das son and Aviram, Dathan and Abiram. So the parasha begins, Moshe is trying to quell the protest. He reaches out and engages with Korach. He gives him a threat. We're going to have a standoff and he might not survive it. He tries to assuage him and he tells him, you know what? You're a Levite. You have a lot going for you. And then Moshe tries to reach out to Dathan and Abiram. He reaches out to them individually. And of course, ultimately the conspirators die. Some are swallowed up in a sinkhole. Some are consumed in a fire and some die in a plague. What I want to do today is examine the story of two of the conspirators, namely Dathan and Abiram, Dasam and Aviram, two brothers from the tribe of Rubain. We're going to study their backstory, and I think there's some valuable lessons to be learned from these two malcontents. So verse 12 in our Parsha, we read how Moshe is reaching out to Dathan and Abiram. Again, Moshe is trying to quiet The rebellion, Moshe wants to stamp out the insurrection without any bloodshed. So he reaches out to Dathan Abiram, and he says, okay, let's come talk. And they respond by telling him, no, we're not going to talk to you. It's not enough that you brought us from a land flowing with milk and honey. You took us out of Egypt. Egypt was an amazing land. And now you bring him here to die in the wilderness. And now you want to be in charge of us. You want to lord over us. And you know what? Even if you did... Bring us to a land flow with milk and honey. And you did give us possession of fields and vineyards. Even if you pledge to gouge out our eyes, if we don't come, still, we're not going to come to you. So they respond with tremendous disrespect to Moshe. We're not coming to talk to you. And ultimately, they died. They are buried alive in the sinkhole. So who were these people? Who were these two brothers, Dathan and Abiram, Dasam and Aviram? Who were they? What's their backstory? So the Midrash and the Talmud, they give us a little bit of a peek behind the curtains, and they show us how these two brothers were legendary rabble-rousers and malcontents. In fact, many instances in the Torah, hitherto, of anonymous people who are complaining, who are misbehaving, the Midrash tells us that they were actually these two, Das and Avim, these two brothers that are featured in our Parsha. So let's go through some of the stories in the Torah that we find out of the Midrash were actually stories about Dasan and Aviram. So the first time that they appear is in the beginning of Exodus chapter 2. Of course, Exodus chapter 2, we read about the birth of Moshe, and he grows up, and he goes out to go check up on his brethren. On the first day of Moshe's adulthood narrative, he sees an Egyptian beating up a Jew, and he kills the Egyptian and buries him in the sand. And then on the next day, on day two, he goes out and he sees two Hebrew men fighting. And he says to the wicked one, why do you strike your fellow man? 
there's two anonymous people fighting, and Moshe is intervening. Moshe is trying to break up this fight. Who were these two anonymous people who are fighting? So Rashi tells us that these are none other than the two malcontents of our story, Dathan and Abiram, Dasan and Abiram. And how do they react when Moshe tries to break up their fight? They tell him, are you better than us? Are you a minister? Are you a judge over us? Do you plan on killing us like you killed the Egyptian yesterday? And Moshe gets frightened. And he says, indeed, the matter has become known. And Rashi tells us, what does this mean that Moshe becomes frightened? What does it mean that Moshe says that the matter has become known? Rashi tells us, quoting from the Midrash, that Moshe was worried that because there were informers, because there were people amongst the Jewish people who were evil and were going to spread the message that Moshe killed the Egyptian to the authorities, now he's worried, now he's concerned, maybe they don't have enough merits to be redeemed. And then he adds, the matter has become known. Moshe used to wonder, why are the Jewish people suffering so much? And now he knows. Now that he sees that the nation is comprised of people like Dasam and Aviram, I know that they indeed are deserving. And the next verse tells us that Pharaoh finds out about what happened. How does he find out? Because Dasan and Aviram go tell him. They go rat on Moshe. They go inform on Moshe. And Pharaoh wants to execute, wants to murder Moshe. And Moshe has to escape and he ends up in the land of Midian. And that's when he meets his wife. And the story continues from there. Eventually he has the experience at the burning bush and he goes back to Egypt to go save the Jewish people. So if you read the story, you find out that there's a lot of crimes being committed here by Dasan and Aviram. Number one, of course, Moshe finds them fighting. He sees two people fighting and he tries to intervene. That's the first sin. And then they refuse to accept Moshe's reprimandation. Second sin. And then they go and form on Moshe to Pharaoh. And then Moshe has to flee. So there's a whole series of events that are all being precipitated by the sinful behavior of Dasan and Aviram. And Moshe even makes this amazing comment. Moshe's been wondering... Why are the Jewish people suffering? And then we discover that the reason for the exile, the reason for the Jewish people suffering, is precisely Dasam and Aviram. They epitomized what was wrong with the people. And think about it. How much pain did they cause Moshe personally? How many years was Moshe forced out of Egypt? The Midrash tells us that when this episode happened, this first episode of Moshe's adulthood, he was 20. And when he returns to go save the Jewish people... He is 80 years old. So in effect, these two people, these two brothers, these two malcontents, Dasan and Aviram, Dathan and Abiram, they are responsible for Moshe's 60 years of exile. And that's only the first time that they appear in the Torah. The second time that Dasan and Aviram appear is in the end of Parshas Shmos. Moshe is hired, is appointed by God to go save the Jewish people. And the first attempt at earning the Jewish people's freedom backfires. Pharaoh increased the Jewish people's misery and workload by withdrawing the ingredients needed for Brits and maintaining the necessary quota. And we read in chapter 5, verse 15 of Exodus, that the foremen, the people in charge of making sure the Jewish people fulfill their workload, they request an audience with Pharaoh. And they say to him, why did you do this to us? 
There's no straw. You're not coming to the ingredients for the bricks. And yet you tell us to make bricks. And now we're being beaten up, say the foreman. It's not our fault. It's your fault. So Pharaoh responds to them, you're a bunch of shirkers. You're trying to leave Egypt. Obviously, you're being preoccupied with all this nonsense. And that's why I said that you're not going to have straw, but the quota will be maintained. So they have this fruitless meeting with Pharaoh. And then when they leave, who is standing by the door? It's Moshe and Aaron. And we read in verse 20 of chapter 5, the people leave Pharaoh's presence. They chant upon Moshe and Aaron. And they say to them, May the Lord, may God look upon you and punish you for making us loathsome to Pharaoh and to his people. Moshe and Aaron, they're coming to save the Jewish people. And someone is saying to them, may God punish you. Someone is cursing them because of their efforts. Who are these people cursing Moshe and Aaron? So again, we find in the Midrash, Dathan and Abiram. The third time they appear in the Torah. This is after the Exodus, after all the miracles. Now they're about to have the story of the splitting of the sea. But Pharaoh is converging upon the Jewish people. And the people freak out. They're terrified. They cry out to God and they tell Moshe, are there insufficient graves in Egypt that you brought us to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us? Why did you take us out of Egypt? This is what we said to you in Egypt. Let us be. Let us remain in Egypt. It's better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the wilderness. Again, after the miracles of the plagues, there are still people who refuse to believe. And they say, you know what? Let us die. Let us die in Egypt. It's better for us to die in Egypt than to come out and be saved. Who are these people? Again, we find out in the Midrash, Dathan and Abiram. The next time they appear, that's during the story of the manna. The Jewish people get this magical manna flying from heaven, and God says, okay, only two rules. Number one, you can't leave over any manna for the next day. Number two, you cannot collect it on Shabbos. And again, in Exodus 16, 19, we read, Moshe tells them, don't leave anything until the morning. Don't save. Don't stockpile for the next day. And there are people who don't listen. And they save some of it for the next day. It becomes infested with maggots. And Moshe gets angry. Who are those people? Dasan and Aviram. Again, a few verses later, 1627, there are people that go out to try to collect manna on Shabbos. Who are they? Dasan and Aviram. So again, we see these people are committing crime after crime after crime, going all the way back to the book of Exodus. Last week's Parsha, Parsha Shlach. After the negative report of the spies, someone makes a suggestion. This is in verse 4 of chapter 14. One man said to his brother, let us appoint a head and return to Egypt. Again, who were these people who made the suggestion to go back to Egypt after the episode of the spies? Dustin and Aviram. In fact, the Midrash adds, what do they mean when they say, let us appoint a head? Says the Midrash that they wanted to appoint Dasan, Dathan, in place of Moshe, and Aviram in place of Aaron. Everyone heard the frightening report of the spies of the land of Israel. But only Dasan and Aviram had the goal, had the gumption, had the chutzpah to propose returning to Egypt. And finally, in our parsha, they describe the land of Egypt 
as a land flowing with milk and honey, and they are they are participating in the rebellion, in the insurrection of Korach. So needless to say, Dasan and Aviram, Dathan and Aviram, have quite an impressive and lengthy rap sheet. And by the way, we find out in the Kabbalistic literature that they were unrepentant to the very end. And all rabble-rousers in Jewish history are actually none other than reincarnations of Dasan and Aviram. But I think reading the backstory, the story of Dasan and Aviram, it raises a bunch of questions, or at least a few interesting angles for discussion. They've done all kinds of sins over the course of the Torah. For some reason, the sin of collaborating with Korach that is the straw that broke the camel's back. They weren't punished for anything they did hitherto, and they're only punished now once they join Korach's rebellion. That's one question that we get asked. Another question we can ask is, the Midrash tells us that there were a whole bunch of people, Jews, who wanted to remain in Egypt. And during the plague of darkness a very sizable percentage of the Jewish people actually died and were buried in Egypt because they refused to join the Exodus. So I would think we have Dasan and Aviram here who are describing the land of Egypt as the land flowing with milk and honey. Wouldn't they be great candidates to remain in Egypt? Why indeed did they join the Exodus? There's another question from the Rashi on the first verse of our Parsha. Rashi says that if you look at the layout, the encampment of the Jewish people, the family of Kehas, which is the family that Korah was part of, was situated in proximity to the tribe of Ruvain. And three of the collaborators of Korach were part of the tribe of Ruvain, the two brothers that we're talking about, Dasan of Yerum, and On, the son of Pelas, the other conspirator. And Rashi tells us that because of their proximity to Korach, that's why they joined the rebellion. Woe to the wicked and woe to his neighbor. To me, this was a very interesting Rashi. Because if we know anything about Dasan and Aviram, we know that they are always interested in complaining and joining every rebellion. Why does Rashi need to justify, oh, you should know, Dasan and Aviram, they joined this rebellion. They were corrupted because they were neighbors of Korach. If we know one thing about Dasan and Aviram is that they're always interested in complaining and always interested in resisting Moshe and Aaron. So why is this episode different that Rashi has to explain the origin of their criminality. But I think I want to focus on one question which may help us answer some of these other questions. They're doing all these sins, sin after sin, with no consequence. They're being kept around for so long. They do sins with the manna, they're complaining by the spilling of the sea, they're sending motion into exile, they're informing on Moshe to Pharaoh. They're the ones who are weaponizing the report of the spies to say to go back to Egypt. Why is it necessary to keep them around for so long? 
What role are they playing amongst the nation? So I saw a very interesting Maharal. Maharal says that Dasan and Aviram, they were the counterweights. They were the foils for Moshe and Aaron. And he says a very profound idea. He says the Jewish people merited to have two great people in their midst. Two people that were head and shoulders above the rest of their peers, the two holiest people in the nation, the two most distinguished people in the nation, Moshe and Aaron. As a result, there has to be a counterbalance. There has to be two people amongst the Jewish people who were so sinful, as righteous as Moshe and Aaron were on that side, so to speak, of the spectrum. You have to have people that were equally polarized on the other side of the spectrum. And therefore, if you have two tzaddikim, two righteous people, as righteous as Moshe and Aaron, you must necessarily have people that are the exact mirror image on the flip side of Moshe and Aaron, wicked to the opposite extreme, to the nth degree, and that's why you have Dasan and Aviram. You have to have people who are always opposing Moshe and Aaron in order to have Moshe and Aaron. This is a very interesting, I think, provocative idea. If we do have a Moshe and an Aaron, there must be an anti-Moshe and an anti-Aaron. If there's a person of total holiness, total purity, like Moshe, like Aaron, necessarily there has to be the opposite. And that is Dasan and Aviram. Otherwise, there's no balance. If you just have Moshe and you don't have the anti-Moshe, if you just have Aaron and you don't have the anti-Aaron, there's no free will. There's no balance. There always has to be a balance. I think if we extend this idea logically to the next step, we discover another very deep point. We said if there's a Moshe, there has to be an anti-Moshe. If there's an Aaron, there has to be an anti-Aaron. But on the flip side, if there's no Dasan and Aviram, there can be no Moshe and Aaron. We ask the question, why are they sticking around for so long? They're obviously not interested in being part of the Jewish people. They're obviously not interested in the Exodus. They're not interested in Moshe and Aaron, yet they persist. Maybe this is the answer. If we did not have the foils, the counterweights, the counterbalances of Moshe, if we didn't have them, we couldn't have had Moshe and Aaron. And therefore, what happens? We get rid of Dasan and Aviram. Necessarily, we're condemning the Jewish nation to lose Moshe and Aaron as well. And therefore, there's a need to tolerate Dasan and Aviram for as long as possible to keep them alive, to extend their existence. Because otherwise, if we didn't have this counterweight of Moshe and Aaron, we necessarily must lose them. And indeed, in Netri's parasha, after Dustin and Aviram are gone, Moshe and Aaron are officially condemned to die. And indeed, in Netri's parasha, Aaron actually dies. Maybe we could speculate. This is me talking here. In our parasha, Dustin and Aviram die in a very unusual way. They are swallowed alive. And in fact, the Torah, this is chapter 16, verse 33, the Torah stresses that Dasan and Aviram were swallowed and they were still alive. Why is it necessary that they have this unusual existence 
where they're killed, they're swallowed up, but they're still alive. Perhaps we could say that there had to be some life given to them, even when they're dead, because if they were totally dead, well, then Moshe and Aaron wouldn't be able to be alive either. There always has to be a balance. If there's holiness, if there's intense holiness, there has to be the intensity, the equal intensity on the other side. Now, this idea is found in the Talmud as well. The Talmud tells us a very dramatic story as to how the men of the Great Assembly got rid of the desire of the Yetzhara, of the draw of idolatry. It tells us a very dramatic story. It's brought down in Sanhedrin, Talmud of Sanhedrin, page 64a. They were crying and they were fasting for three days and they said to God, they petitioned God, this force, idolatry, this force, that's the reason why the temple was destroyed. And that's why the sanctuary was burned. And that's why all the righteous people have died. And this is the force that caused the Jewish people to go into exile. And this force is still dancing amongst us. We don't want it. And we don't want its reward. They're petitioning God to get rid of the desire of idolatry. Today it doesn't make any sense to us. We look back at the people of yesteryear. And we say, why were they so obsessed with idolatry? What did they see in it? What pleasure did they possibly envision that they could get from genuflecting to figurines? Doesn't make sense to us at all. Talmud tells us that the men of the Great Assembly prayed and they fasted for three days and they were delivered the desire, the Yetzirahara for idolatry. It's a very dramatic story. I would advise everyone to read it because then after they successfully conquered the desire, the Sahara, the lust for idolatry, they said, hey, you know, once we are able to do that, let's get rid of other lusts. And they tried to get rid of the lust for procreation, for sexuality, and that didn't go as smoothly. But the commentaries explain there's this very important juncture in history. The men of the Great Assembly... They appear roughly 2,400 years ago. Think of it as the beginning of the Second Temple Era. And that time coincides with the end of the prophets. The last of the prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. These are the final prophets of the Jewish people. And specifically at this time, the desire for idolatry dissipates as well. And the commentaries explain along this line. If there is no connection, no deep connection to God via prophecy, if that goes extinct, necessarily the anti-connection to God, i.e. idolatry, has to go away as well. And there's a very powerful takeaway. If we don't have idolatry, we don't have prophecy. If we don't have prophecy, we don't have idolatry. If we don't have Dasan and Aviram, Moshe and Aaron could not have emerged. And thus we could say, because of Dasan and Aviram, Moshe and Aaron attained their greatness. Think about it. Moshe is sent into exile. He grows up as a prince in Egypt. At the age of 20, he does something good. He tries to break up a fight. And as a result of that, He's sent into exile. And how long is he exiled from his people? For 60 years, essentially a lifetime. 
Imagine what we would be going through. How would we be feeling towards someone who caused us so much angst, so much pain, so much suffering? But ultimately, once things settle, once we can look back at the story in retrospect, we discover that if not for Dustin and Avuram, Moshe would not have been sent to exile, and he wouldn't have had those 60 years to prime himself to become the great leader and savior of the Jewish people. And I think the takeaways here are very valuable. If you have a nemesis, if you have an enemy, if you have a problem, if you have a challenge, those things are given to us to accentuate our greatness, to accelerate our growth. And the greater the nemesis, the greater the problem, the greater the challenge, the greater the enemy, that is indeed indicative of the greater potential. There's two very similar sins in the Torah. We have Adam's sin in the Garden of Eden, and we have the sin of the golden calf right after the Ten Commandments or after the Sinai experience. They're very similar because both Adam, before his sin, and the Jewish people, right after Sinai, both are at the apex of human achievement, yet both commit terrible sins. And the Midrash tells us that at the time that the Jewish people were committing the sin of the golden calf, where was Moshe? So we know he was in heaven. He was in heaven, spending 40 days studying all of Torah and getting the tablets. These tablets, say the Midrash, they embody the close connection that God has with the Jewish people. At what juncture of the delivery of the tablets was the sin of the golden calf committed? So the Midrash tells us that the tablets were six finger breadths long. That's how big they were. At the moment of the sin of the golden calf, the tablets were two finger breadths in God's hand, two in Moshe's hands, and two in the middle. And the commentaries explain that this is the absolute apex of connection, where God is holding the tablets, and he's delivering it to the Jewish people, and they're still being bound by it. That is the highest level the Jewish people have ever reached. And specifically when they were at their apex, that's when the challenge is necessarily also augmented, also has to be at its apex, and therefore they could commit the worst sin, maybe the worst sin in history, because the intensity of the Eitzarah, the intensity of their enemy, of their nemesis, was also at its apex at the time of the Jewish people's spirituality was also at their apex. If the Jewish people do have the ultimate connection between them and God, if they do have the greatest prophet, they have to also have the flip side. And conversely, if you have a problem, if we have a problem, we have to know that that's also our opportunity, that's also our potential for achieving our greatness. My grandfather of blessed memory used to talk about this idea a lot. The people that have the greatest abilities, that have the most outstanding skills that the Almighty expects the most from, these are the people that are going to have necessarily the greatest tests and the greatest challenges. And on a more granular level, the specific area of someone's life where they face the most resistance, that is an indication that that's the area where they have the most 
opportunity, the most potential as well for greatness. We think of our problems, we think of our enemies, we think of our nemeses as things we love to get rid of. We have to realize that those things are delivered to us by God precisely commensurate to the amount of greatness that we can garner from these problems. There are tremendous benefits from our enemies, from our nemeses, because those are the things that could catapult us to the next level. I want to maybe also speculate that this is true also on a society-wide level. I have a lot of colleagues that lament the increase, shall we say, of mindlessness of today's generation. Oh, kids today, they're just on their phone and they're just scrolling and all they want to do is Instagram and TikTok. How can we teach them Torah? How can we influence them positively? I think if the Torah is teaching us this idea, it's telling us that because our generation has so much mindlessness, that is actually an indication that there is more opportunity for mindfulness than ever before. There is this idea in psychology called the Flynn effect, this unexplained increase over time of people's intellect and people's understanding. And you kind of ask yourself the question, wait a minute, are people getting smarter? Doesn't seem like it. People are getting into sillier and sillier things. Here's the answer. To the degree that we have descended collectively, society-wide, into mindlessness, there must be the commensurate amount of potential for tremendous achievement, for tremendous greatness. And this is, I think, a theme that we've been harping on for some time. We ought to celebrate our challenges, embrace our challenges, recognize that the greater our challenges are, the greater our opportunities are, for becoming extraordinary. Dasan and Aviram, they filled a very important and vital role for the Jewish people. Their role was to be a foil, to be resistance for Moshe and for Aaron. And that gave them the opportunity to accentuate their leadership and to accentuate their greatness. If not for them, we wouldn't have had a Moshe, we wouldn't have had an Aaron. When all was said and done, we look at the story and we see that these people, Dustin and Aviram, were actually the instigators of the redemption and for Moshe's ascension. And I think it's a very deep lesson for us. When we see something that could potentially pull us down, when we see obstacles that are preventing us from becoming great, we have to realize that that's actually not an obstacle. That's an accelerant. It may appear to be an obstacle. It may indeed be an obstacle if we allow it to become an obstacle. But those things that could pull us down are the same exact things that can lift us up. A very powerful insight. And we see the story. Two people, malcontents from the beginning to end. But once the story is finished, we realize that they were the reasons why we could have earned a Moshe and an Aaron. So that's an idea that I wanted to share on these two very unusual people in our story. They appear malcontents from beginning to end, but I think they do teach us a very valuable, important lesson. Thank you for listening. Hope you enjoyed. Take care. We'll speak to you, please God, next week. My email address is rabbiwallbygema.com.